Hello and welcome to episode 79 of The Thing About Golf, Golf Australia Magazine's ongoing exploration into the who and why of playing this most addictive of all games. My name's Rod Murray, and on this episode we really are getting to the heart of what it is that makes golf unique. To outsiders, golf looks like a stick and ball game that's all about the score. And let's be honest, sometimes we golfers are guilty of thinking the same way. But today's guest and the work he is doing is a stark reminder of just how much more important golf can be than any number on any scorecard. In fact, it's my eternal hope that some of those who feel our cities would be better without public access to the game might listen to today's episode and realise just what it is they are campaigning against. Tony Blackburn is the founder of Golf in Society, a UK-based social enterprise that gives the gift of golf to those suffering with dementia, Parkinson's disease, the effect of stroke, and multiple other medical conditions. What started as a way to help his dad continue to enjoy the game after a cancer diagnosis has morphed into a program that is enriching and improving the lives of sufferers and carers right across the UK. Tony's an energetic and engaging speaker whose love for the game runs much deeper than even his own joy of playing, and that passion is infectious, as you'll hear in this chat. I hope you enjoy learning about golf in society with Tony Blackburn as much as I did. Well, Tony Blackburn, the first thing we have to say is thanks for taking the time. We know that the thing about golf is a commitment, but I don't think commitment is a problem for you, <laughs> given what we're going to discuss today. It's, been, it's good of you to take some time to chat to us. Thanks. It's an absolute pleasure, Rod. I think the pleasure is going to be all ours. Tony, normally we jump off at the point, which is the title of the podcast, The Thing About Golf. Before we come to the golf in society, which is sort of your life's calling, I feel, let's back up a bit. What was your relationship with golf, if any at all, prior to starting this organisation and this program? Well, believe it or not, Rod, the first experience I had of golf was with my dad. I was a, I was a retailer by trade back in the day and dad when i was home on holiday one week said to me do you fancy a game of golf well at that time my thing was football and cricket and i was sport mad but i've never played golf before so we came home from work one evening and we just decided to go down to his local club and uh, try nine holes what sort of age and were you really, what, what age are we talking about 27 okay 27. quite late then yeah. yeah 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 27 but i've always been as i say passionate about mm-hmm. sport but i thought you know what i quite like this and my cricketing career was coming not to an end but Probably my best days were getting to be behind me, and I thought this will be something that I can enjoy later in life. It's one of the areas that golf ignores when it's trying to scoop up new people into the game is those people late 20s and early to mid-30s, up to the mid-40s, where competitive sport, even though they might not have played professionally, has been a big part of people's lives and they're struggling to continue to play. They're ripe for golf. You meet people in that situation in golf all the time, and invariably they say to a person, wish I'd found this 20 years ago. <laughs> it fulfills something for them later in life that they can't, they can no longer get because the body won't sort of do it. So what's, were you a regular golfer? Did you join a club? Did you get good? What, what sort of standard did you get to? Because it's become a very important thing in your life clearly now. I'm just wondering what the progression was from that introduction at 27 to where we are now. Well, in, in, interesting enough, initially it was just uh, a few games with my friends, a uh, few society days, corporate days. And I suppose you would call me a bit of a bandit because being a keen sportsman at these events, they used to give me quite a, a reasonable handicap, let's say. Yes. And um, I, used, I used to be pretty successful. <laughs> well, they gave you the so, handicap, Tony. That can be no fault of yours. <laughs> so that was my first sort of experience of it. And I've only actually 
been a member of one club in my whole life. And that's when I, I moved to Ripon in North Yorkshire and I joined Ripon City Golf Club. And I was started there in 2007 and I got a first handicap of 18, mm-hmm. quickly came down to 13 and my career best was five. Oh, nice work. Well done. That's, uh, the two of us got some, some natural talent to take it up late and get to there. We're going to do your thing about golf in two parts, I think. What was the thing about golf for you then? What grabbed you about the game? I'll be honest with you. I I love the fact that I could be competitive still in sport. I've always been competitive. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong. Uh, I don't win at all costs, no, no. but I go out to win. And that is my always my intention. And golf gave me that opportunity to improve my performance, but also be competitive. Mm-hmm. And that sense of competitiveness has never lost been lost from my body, Rod. It's still there today. So that's, I think, what it gave me. But also the other thing was being a busy uh, retail executive at the time, I needed somewhere where I could go just to have my space. Yeah. I called it my happy place and I could just kick off all the worries yeah. and just go out there in some beautiful surroundings. And it, you just freed up your mind and you just felt so much better at the end when you came off that course. And you could hate yourself in a nice place, which is always a much better way to, <laughs> to do it, Tony. <laughs> it's a different kind of comp- competition and competitive golf, is it not? I'm not, I've not been big and I don't follow other sports I've not really played many other sports but golf feels like a unique type of competition to me you play both with and against your friends and the rest of the field but you predominantly play against yourself and all the course don't you is it a, does it feel different someone who's competitive is it a different competitive fire that it stokes I, I think it is that uniqueness that you've just mentioned there it's multifaceted mm. isn't it uh, you've got so many levels at which you're competing you want to be the best that you can be as an individual but you're also contributing in certain formats of golf. And this is m- often misunderstood. It's seen as a, an individual game, but you're often playing in team competitions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and at the end of the day, your buddies and your team need you at some stage to either hit that great shot or hold that great putt. So there is that sense of togetherness and team in golf that I think is sometimes uh, lost a little bit, I think. Certainly a lot more in amateur golf than you see in professional golf, which is probably where most people get their idea of how golf works. Let's fast forward a bit, Tony. Uh We've got now the Golf in Society. Give us a quick thumbnail sketch of what Golf in Society is, what's it for, and then we're going to dig a little bit deeper into how it came to be uh, and why it's important. Well, Golf in Society is a social enterprise. Basically, it's about putting golf at the heart of local communities, and it's then about attracting people who are maybe facing a challenge in life to come and experience a happier, healthier, more connected life at their local golf club. So I suppose what we're doing is we're inspiring completely new audiences to discover golf, but then also make it their go-to and happy place that they look forward to visiting every week. So that's, in essence, what we do. And by doing that, we keep people more active, more uh, mentally stimulated, more socially connected. And then basically, we support carers as well. Such a brilliant, holistic approach to improving people's lives through something they never even thought that they would either do in their life or a golf club they would even visit in their life. Yeah. Fine. The bit I think you forgot to mention there is what we're talking about here with people with physical and um, mental conditions, dementia particularly, but Parkinson's disease and others is a sort of target. This is not a get-into-golf program for your 35, 40, 50-year-old who hasn't played before, is it? This is targeted for a reason at a certain sector of the community, yeah? Yeah, it is. It's the ageing population, I would say. Older people have less opportunity. Uh, to actually keep active. 
whether it be a disability or a chronic illness that comes their way, often that ends uh, an activity career or a sporting career. And I suppose what we're doing is giving them the opportunity to keep that going for as long as they want it to keep going, really. So we overcome a lot of the traditional barriers, as opposed to enjoying regular activity and doing it in an enjoyable way, really. Dementia and Parkinson's were the two sort of chronic illnesses we started with. And I never thought it would start with that. Basically, it was to help people like my dad, who died of cancer, who just needed a bit of help towards the end of his life to keep enjoying sport. And we used to go to his local club and he'd play a few holes towards the end. Then it was just putting. But he also enjoyed a pint with his mates in the social engagement and keeping those stories going about the football last night or the cricket at the weekend. And that was where the sort of idea came. It was anybody facing a challenge later in life, like my dad, who just need a bit of help to keep enjoying it. In Australia, we have, they're quite popular these days. It's a sort of a movement called the Men's Shed. This happened to my own father, and you'd probably be familiar with this yourself, and I think most people would. Blokes get to retirement age, and they stop working, and suddenly realise they don't have anything else in life. Often, golfers don't face that. Golfers tend to be the blokes who look forward to retirement so they can play more golf. It's, a, it's an interesting proposition. I, I can't think of any other, certainly not a sport. There are other recreations. You know, guys like to tinker with cars and motorbikes and some of those sort of things. And fishing is one, I suppose, that lends itself to it. Golf would be high on that list, I would think, because all sorts of issues come from not having activities to do once you retire, don't they? Absolutely. And as I say, those challenges that come your way through no fault of your own, whether it be a stroke, mm-hmm. whether it be a, some form of disability, whether that be physical or or, or or mental disability, which are often the you know the, the hidden ones that people sometimes don't think about too much, those things get in the way of you doing that thing, and all you need is a, a friendly arm around you, a friendly coach, if you like, a golf buddy, to actually keep that enjoyment in your life. Because at the end of the day, Rod, we all have certain things that spark us, mm. and I've just managed to find a recipe here that through sport and through golf in particular – sparks people back into life so sport togetherness that banter that camaraderie that that uh, sense of wanting to win and achieve is in your life and it's in your dna then all i'm doing is through what we do is sparking that and giving people the opportunity to enjoy it hell of an idea to come up with tony much more difficult to implement i would have imagined how did you go about it once you'd sort of had this germ of an idea which I suppose it, most most of us have had some sort of an idea at some point, which we've thought that would be interesting and a good idea, and then we move on and do something else because it all is really a bit too hard. How did you go from this would be a wonderful thing to do for the community and something you'd like to do for yourself to actually doing it and to where you are now? Well, as I mentioned, I was a retailer by trade, and back in 2008, I lost my retail business. Dad had passed away, as I mentioned, from cancer, and I sat, sort of sat down and I thought, what does <laughs> the second half of my life look like? And... I thought, I really like helping people. I love sport. And obviously, mum had been widowed, so I needed to be there for my mum as well to help her out. So I just sat down and I thought, what do I want to do in the future? Well, sport had to be at the heart of it. Helping people was a key thing for me and having time to be there for my family, especially my mum. So I sat down and I thought about how I could do that. And at the time, I was a very keen golfer, as you know. And then I just decided that, why don't I try and see whether there's anything out there that uh, would help people like my dad, who just needed a bit of sports cause in his life to keep enjoying it. And there was nothing at the time. And to keep a roof over my head, to keep paying the bills, I decided to learn a bit about being a carer. So I actually retrained and worked for two or three care agencies. 
And I got an intimate understanding of what it's like on a daily basis living with some of the chronic illnesses we talked about before, Parkinson's, dementia, uh, stroke, and just supporting people to have a, a, a decent day, if you like. And I really enjoyed that. And I put that learning together with my love of sport together, put a little business plan together for an organization called Unlimited who supports social entrepreneurs like me, just give their idea a go. And it's actually called a Do It Award. Right, right. So I got... I got £2,000 and I decided to give it a go. So I basically, in partnership with England Golf and the Alzheimer's Society, selected a club, advertised what we were about to do, and I tested the idea. And on day one, back in 2016, in September, I had one customer, uh, a gentleman with Louis body dementia, and his carer he came along. He used to be a past captain of a local club, and he thoroughly enjoyed it. So within those two hours, I transformed his life and I put golf back into his life. And then within six weeks, uh, rather starting the program, we were full with eight customers, eight golfers and carers coming every week. And it, it sort of snowballed from there, really. Initially, it was uh, really hard to, to get the traction because you knew you're small. You don't have a reputation. People said to me when I started, you're going to teach people with dementia to play golf. They thought I was crazy. Mm. But you must have thought I, it yourself at times, Tony, during the journey. <laughs> I mean that quite seriously. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. But it made me realize that with dementia, when you're in the moments of something you enjoy, that is what makes life normal for people with this terrible disease. And I noticed very quickly that I was getting people in the moment enjoying something and the rest of the challenges just sort of seemed to just uh, wash away and it was all about the golf shot the winning the camaraderie the banter life stories life jokes were just flooding back and then to see how much it was meaning to the carers as well which I, i'll be honest with you rod when i started i never even thought about the positive impact we'd be having on carers lives by giving them that regular break uh, and that's where it all sort of sort of started from and i suppose in those early formative days, there were some hard knocks. Uh, I used to feel as though I was talking a different language to health professionals, to people in the golf industry as well, really, in mm -hmm. terms of trying to get the idea to get a bit of traction. And the one thing that kept me going on those journeys to and from the venues when I was starting out and trying the idea was thinking back to the difference that I'd made to those people's lives because that was the inspiration and that's all I needed at that stage to keep going. And it gave me the determination, which I've still got today, to go out there and make a difference to more people's lives through this project. Yeah. You mentioned dementia there. And as I said to you, it's the one I think of when I think about the golf incident. And I think it's because it's touched my life. My dad had dementia and it was a horrible thing to watch unfold, awful for him and awful for everybody around him. And I think most people will have, will have had, or if they haven't yet, will have some experience with dementia. I think you said you have some statistics around that particular condition, and uh, that's the one to me, And uh, which is not to belittle any of the other conditions of people that you work with, stroke and Parkinson's, as you say, but as I say, that one I know about, and I wonder whether... Yeah, it's, it, it's it, interesting, just looking at the stats uh, this morning in Australia, the latest one is that 386,000 Australians are living with a dementia diagnosis and of that interesting enough the majority of them um are women really well wow, because women generally live a little longer Long. than men yeah and also interesting enough of those 
people people with a diagnosis is actually between 135,000 and 300,000 estimated unpaid carers actually delivering support to those families. So it's not just the individual that's touched by it. No, no. As you quite rightly said, within your family, you know, you were touched by it as well. So that's the scale of it, really. And we all know that our health and social care services are under immense pressure dealing with an aging population, living with some of these challenges. And I think that, you know, we need to put our arm around them and think of new ways of supporting them. So it is a sizable problem. But even when I look at your the situation with Parkinson's in uh, Australia, you've got 80,000 people diagnosed with Parkinson's. And the best thing that they say for Parkinson's when you're diagnosed is to keep active, to keep moving. Mm-hmm. And every move really does matter because it, it actually it defers the moment when you need to up your medication and go on to the, let's say, the clinical medical interventions. So the more active you can keep yourself, the better. So between dementia and Parkinson's, you can see it's a sizable problem in Australia. Absolutely. Yeah, indeed. Well, it's, a, it's a bit like dropping a stone in a pond, isn't it? At the centre of it, you've got the person with dementia, but the concentric circles that go out from that are all the rest of the people who are part of their life, from those who are close to those who are further out. You mentioned carers and uh, the idea of a respite uh, for carers, which is extraordinarily important. And anybody who's been in that situation will understand the importance of just needing to have a break sometimes. That is a a really difficult and hard road to hoe. Do you find also that, I imagine that after a, a day at golf, the dementia patient or the demen- the person with dementia who has the carer is a happier being and an easier to care for person in some ways as well? Perhaps so you get the respite of having some time away, but you get a happier person to care for when they come back? Absolutely. If I could just put you now in front of every single carer we've supported, that is exactly what happens. Hmm. But it's interesting that don't just get the two to three hours worth of respite whilst we're out enjoying the, the golfing experience and they're off doing their own thing. They actually get a husband or a wife that comes home and because of the physical activity and the fresh air, they're actually pretty tired. So they maybe go to sleep for two to three hours and that's a great time for them to maybe do a few household chores knowing that their loved one is content and asleep after a great day out and it gives them a chance to do the ironing or whatever other domestic chores they might have to do. So it's actually an extended respite support, if you like, for the for the carers really, who, Rod, I'll be honest with you, they're my unsung heroes oh. because they got these families through COVID, lockdown, all the support services for these people, unfortunately, for, for, for right reasons, uh, were sort of limited. And they managed to get them through. So their resilience is something that inspires me. And I've got to now be there for them to make sure we get their happiness and healthy lives back on track. Because if we see that amazing pillar of support in our societies fall over, then we all know the scale of the problem that will leave us to face. I mentioned I wanted to come back to this notion, the thing about golf for you when you discovered it, and that's a journey we're all familiar with. Not many non-golfers listening to this podcast, I'd be surprised if there were, Tony. What do you think is the thing about golf for the people that you're giving it to, for want of a better term? And are there other activities that might be able to engender the same response, do you think? Or is golf somewhat unique? I think there are other sports that people can enjoy. But interesting how you mentioned it there. At some stage especially in a, a life with dementia, the way that the brain is affected, there are certain sports that you will not unfortunately be able to continue to play. 
uh, table tennis is a great example. At some stage, the sort of motor function in your brain will probably not allow you to play those great mm-hmm. table tennis shots or tennis shots that you've always played. The beauty of golf, and this is its uniqueness, and other sports, it's not a moving target initially. It's actually a stationary ball that you can focus on. And the beauty of it, if, even if you're not playing 18 holes, the experience can actually take place just on a putting green, uh, a practice area. So you don't have to have that full, what we would call golf experience. Mm. You can tailor it to the individual as they go through their challenge with their diagnosis so that you can keep it in their lives for longer. And I think golf is perfectly placed because it's a sport you can enjoy from cradle to grave. And as I say, Rod, till you pop your clogs. You're, well, you're absolutely right. It's one of the unique things about it. I was, I was going to ask you about what is the golf activity. So what does the what do the activities look like? I assume I'm trying to find the page on your website madly while you're talking. I can't find it. You've got a series of posts there which repeat a couple of themes over again, which is about you don't need any golf experience to take part in a program like this. And the second one is the one I was looking for, which I can't remember, which you repeat over and over again. I think it's about tailoring the experience to the needs of the person that it's targeted at. So what do people actually do when they come to a golf and society event? Well, the whole experience starts with us doing a great job in saying, don't worry if you've got no golf experience. So that's the first thing. Then what we do is we offer free taster sessions. Mm -hmm. And the beauty of the taster session, uh, Rod, is we welcome them to an environment that, let's face it, in some parts of the world can be quite intimidating. Absolutely. So we welcome them into this new beautiful space. And once they get there, they see the beauty of the uh, the natural landscapes. But then what we do is we get to know them as individuals because behind every, every uh, person is a great life story. And then what we do is we put them through a series of simple golf activities from putting, chipping, maybe a few approach shots. And then within that hour that it takes, we then say to them, is this something you'd like to enjoy on a regular basis? And if the answer is yes, then within two days, we put a person-centered proposal based on their current ability and their potential in front of them. And then they can then come into a program on a weekly basis. And we've got so many different programs that they can join. And that's the beauty of it, of being an agile an agile social enterprise is that you can adapt it to individuals. You haven't got lots of big systems, procedures, mm-hmm. and structures in place. So we can be person-centered and we can build it around the individuals. And one thing that people don't sometimes understand about it is that I'm almost a bit like a dating site because basically when I get to know the individuals, I think, oh, they'll fit really well into that group or they'll be perfect going around the the golf course with those people. So it is, a, just, it is a group activity. It's not an individual. No. Well, it's, it, it's both. Unfortunately, if we get some people, um, Rod, towards the end of their challenge with their illness, we, we do what we call a one-to-one, which is basically that person-centered one-to-one support that guides them around their golfing experience with us. But we try and encourage wherever possible for people to play in the groups because it, it builds up that team, that camaraderie, that social connection. And then they look forward to catching up with each other each week. So we have got different programs from a one-to-one right up to larger group sessions. From the outside, I think most of us, having seen dementia up close, you realise that there's probably a lot of things we misconstrue about what it looks like. But the immediate thing that most people would attach to is a loss of memory or a lack of memory. Do people, particularly the dementia people that you work with, 
do they know and look forward to and understand that they're coming to golf again this week or next week? What sorts of reactions does that draw? Or is it like a new experience each week perhaps for some of them? So here's a great example. I've got a, a gentleman called Jim. His wife's called Jenny. She can't get him out of bed. The only day he gets out of bed and gets himself dressed is a Wednesday morning. And all she has to say to him is, it's golf today, Jim. Right. And the next thing is by the front door with his clubs ready to go out. Right. Because he was a great footballer. He loved his football. Never played golf before joining us. But basically that thing, oh, it's sport today. It's like sports day for him. And it sparked something very positive in his body that actually gave him that sense of purpose to get up, get dressed and get ready. And when he's there, he's just the life and soul of the party. But the beauty of Jim, and this is why I love this story so much, is since he started with us, he's been with us two years now, he's had a hole in one uh, at Brooding Park. And, you know, he'd never played the game before. And, you know, if you said to someone with a cognitive impairment like, like dementia that you could coach somebody to firstly enjoy the game, uh, achieve at the game and then to get that sort of life ambition of a, a hole in one that some of us never experienced. I was about to say there are golfers all is, over the world throwing things at their phone and computer right now because that's just <laughs> so unfair it seems in so many ways. It's just one of the most amazing and inspirational mm. case studies I've got uh, of which I've got many of well, this is the next thing I was going to say. So you obviously would have started small. Firstly, you'll need the cooperation of a golf facility of some sort, be it a course or a driving range. Was that difficult to come by? It varies. There are, uh, the clubs that I initially started with, they, there's two things really that I've now found. It's about people and then it's about facilities. And when I'm looking for a new venue, I always mystery shop it. So I basically go and have a cup of coffee, bacon sandwich, whatever, go to the driving range, and then I just get a sense of the people. And if I think there are good people with the right interpersonal skills and the right ethos, then I think this is maybe a venue we could potentially have a conversation with. And that's how it basically goes. I'll be honest with you, in the early days, I'd walked out of certain conversations after just a cup of coffee because it was all about red tape. It was about risk. It was about mitigating risks. What happens if they go missing? So all those things you mentioned earlier about the misconceptions about people with dementia, it sort of just manifested itself. And I thought, I thought to myself, we're never going to be able to do business with you because you're already concerned and you've not even thought about the opportunity and the impact that this could have on people's lives. And let's face it, a lot of golfers in golf clubs are of a certain age. So you will have men. <laughs> You'll have members. You will have members right. yeah. who were either, you know, early stages, um, ex them uh, sort of uh, certain things are manifesting themselves in their behavior within their normal four ball that they play with. And, you know, you need to understand that these people, if you can keep uh, a good package of support around them and keep them engaged in the game for longer, they're going to be with you as members for longer. So there was that as well. So I think initially it was a challenge, but the good thing is we've got two and a half thousand golf clubs in the UK. So we're not spoilt for choice. So we can be quite selective. Yeah. in terms of the ones that we choose. So it's basically, if I've got the right people, I can overcome some of the maybe facility upgrades that we need. But if I haven't got the right people, we just won't do business won't together. To go. Are some of those those concerns legitimate, Tony? Some of the concerns that you were mentioning clubs might have? It may be about the order that people are thinking about things in, but are some of those concerns, are there safety issues? And you must have had to think about all these things as well. 
yeah, there are safety issues. I'll give you one example. When I first started, um, we had a buggy, and I had on the buggy a guy who used to be in the RAF, and he was uh, a fighter pilot. Oh, so yeah. basically, I forgot to take I forgot to take the keys out of the buggy. So he turned the key on the ignition, put his foot on the accelerator, and off he went. Right. So I was, you know, running down the fairway after him. And so I've learned lessons the hard way. So there are some risks, yeah. but what you do in life, Rod, is you mitigate right. against risk. So basically what we do is we've got a fantastic, what I call a safeguarding uh, policy around us. So we look at every single thing that could go wrong. And that's why we assess every individual when they come into the service, because we're thinking about, you know, the potential challenges. And if we mitigate against those challenges, the experience and the customer enjoyment of that individual and the family will be greater for longer. So it's no different to everything else you would do at a golf venue when thinking about you know, people walking around your golf course, there's risks everywhere. Yeah. But the risks, what we do by having a, a great team of buddies and coaches to go around with these individuals, that support there, they've got all the time. It's not like we're just letting them loose on the golf course. Yeah. They're, you know, they're in a safe environment and they're with great people who will help them through that experience. You've said it's very sort of individualized. Obviously, all of those people are individuals and you certainly see personality differences come shining through. With, particularly with people with dementia. Um, but is there within that a common theme or pattern that you've noticed with those who come to the program, broadly speaking, of the way this works? And are there people for whom it doesn't work, for want of a better term? Interesting you say that. Initially, there was uh, people that it didn't work for. Um, and I think it's possibly because we didn't have the range of services that we could offer to families, but that was a learning. And now our portfolio of services has been developed and refined, and we've actually got the, the actual customers, so the people with a diagnosis, and the carers involved in designing the services. Right. So I think that is, was a big, big change for me. So it's actually co-designed, so we don't do anything unless we've asked the carers and asked the participants, is this something you would like to do? And getting that, that feedback was crucial because I was – probably a bit prescriptive in, a, in the early days in terms of what a program would look like. So it was basically, you know, I'm not saying take it or leave it, but, no. you know, it was very prescriptive and that's mm. what we do. But I think that that light bulb moment of getting the service users engaged in designing the, 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 the actual programs that would support them as families was a, a pivotal moment, really, and it's proving to be quite successful now because there aren't many services, even though they claim to be, that are truly person-centred and have been designed, the service user at the heart of it. It's predominantly a cost issue um, with governments in particular, anything that sort of you know, governments are paying for. You tend to find these issues around cost and aged care, God forbid, has all sorts of issues. The facilities are certainly designed for the operators of the facility and not those who are residents has been my sort of experience. What's the cost to people? of doing your program. I can see, obviously, you're a millionaire. You live in a massive house with a moat around it. That is not true, of course. This is clearly not uh, – there's not a financial incentive necessarily for you in that sense. It is how you make your living. There's got to be some return. How, does the fi how do the finances work? Is it out of reach for some people? The cost of living crisis is affecting everyone at the minute in the world, and I think as we speak here, Rod, it's the first time that really our – what I think are very reasonable costs have ever been discussed really. There are some families where, you know, if they're living on certain benefits that uh, they've got and it's either £10 to heat the house or £10 to play golf, then, you know, that's a tough decision that they've got to make. None that 
I ever thought would happen in the supposedly civilized world, but mm. that's the reality of it at the moment, I'm afraid. But really, our costs are really good because what we do is I've looked very carefully at the cost of respite support. I've looked very carefully at the cost of um, exercise programs. And basically, for £10 an hour, we give the opportunity for an individual with a diagnosis to have a meaningful activity mm. to do with friends and socialize. And we also, at the same time, give their carer the time to do what they want. So if you think about it, respite support, £5 an hour, meaningful activity, £5 an hour, but a couple benefiting for £10. And as long as we get enough numbers into the program, Rod, then it stacks up quite nicely because we're a social enterprise. As long as I can cover the cost of delivering the programs and have a little bit of excess to grow the program and make it available to more people. That's our sort of, if you like, our profit with purpose. Yeah. We don't profiteer out of people. <clears throat> we do the right thing. I pay my people well. They're inspired and engaged and love going out there and supporting people. And it's a really, really nice model. Mm. I was thinking about respite and carers, of course. One of the problems with respite a lot of the time for carers is, and there are options for people, you can you know, take your person to a place and they can stay there for a couple of hours while you have some respite much of the time that respite time is spent worrying about what's happening <laughs> to the other person at the place where you've left them and so the respite is actually just becomes another trauma it's two or three or four hours spent away from this feels like a better solution is that just because i like golf or is it genuinely something that carers can have a genuine respite no that Bob is happy for this three hours. He's at the golf. Well, it comes back to what I said to you about getting the customers involved in the process of the service because ultimately the carers have helped me develop that part of the program so that we can communicate to new customers, new carers, the safety and security that we offer. And I'm so proud of the carers we support because they're quite happy to have those conversations directly with other carers and some of the research we had recently from Sheffield Helm University showed that 100% of the carers we support would recommend our service right. to someone going through the same thing and you can't get better than that and I'm lucky Rod I can step back let carers have the conversations with new carers and I don't even need to get involved because I know they're going to say the right things because it, it, it's it's the truth so I'm very fortunate that, that message is given to my new audience by existing beneficiaries. Tell us about that research. You mentioned the Sheffield Hallam University, I think it was. What sort of research have they done? And what sort of research have you been able to dig up or have you sort of uncovered by going through this process about what the benefits are? Specifically, I guess we're talking about golf, but that notion of activity despite having a diagnosis of be it dementia, Parkinson's, having had a stroke. What sort of things do we know about that? The Sheffield Hallam University research was a game changer for me because I was telling people how great it was in terms of our social impact and our social return on investment. But at the end of the day, we You would say that, the, wouldn't you, as Maggie Thatcher famously I would. said? You would yeah, say yeah, that. Yeah, of course absolutely. You would. <laughs> absolutely. But I, did, I didn't have that empirical evidence. So I was very fortunate to get onto a wellbeing accelerator program through the university. And we were all given a budget of £20,000 spent. And I decided to spend mine on doing a research project. So basically, all our beneficiaries that we had, uh, the 
the researchers from the Sport Industry Research Centre who have got a worldwide fantastic reputation and work with the RNA and everybody. They stepped up to actually do this research for me. So they interviewed carers and they also interviewed people with Parkinson's and dementia, basically my service users. And they came up with the impact we were having on the carers' lives and also the people who were participating with the diagnosis. A bit more challenging ethically getting people with dementia to um, engage in that process. Sometimes it had to be done in partnership with the carer. But then also we got um, some great research in terms of how the carer thought our services impacted on the lives of their loved one. And that evidence basically said that everybody, even the carers, were more active. They felt more connected. They felt more hopeful. So their, if you like, their life satisfaction index had improved. And this was just through our simple golf program. But it was extremely and remains extremely powerful and compelling evidence of the impact we're having through a game of golf, which is why I call it a wonderful game. Yeah. That's important, isn't it, in the bigger picture for golf? And I know in the UK it is similar to here. We see public golf in particular and public golf facilities in urban areas under pressure. You can understand the notion. It's a big footprint of space that it takes up. There are arguments against all of these things, but you can understand how a non-golfer might think about it. Look at all the space those greedy golfers take up. This sort of points to something quite important about the game, doesn't it? Both for the people that you work with and for golfers more broadly and generally about mental health and physical activity, which golf doesn't do a good job of telling those stories, really, does it, as an industry or as a game? No, it doesn't. And I I think what really I'd encourage all of your listeners to do is just check out the recent International Golf and Health Conference. And there's a great video on there about why the world should play golf. And it's uh, a video at the conference by Professor Charlie Foster, who's an activity specialist. And basically, when you look at all of the positive benefits of playing golf, I'm surprised. Well, when you re- when you watch the video, Rod, you'll you'll see you would see a wave of people actually trying to get engaged in the game because you never realise the benefits that uh, this game, which has often been seen seem to be exclusive and elitist, has for everybody in society. No matter what your level of ability, no matter what your background, it's just great for everybody to get involved. There's so much great evidence in that uh, in that conference as to why people should play golf. One of the problems golf has had has been of its own making, and much of that image that it has amongst non-golfers is very easy to confirm if you want to. It's not hard to go looking for the middle-aged, overweight, white men who earn too much money for whatever it is they do in life, and they spend a lot of it on golf. It's not hard to find that, but it's not the only golf. I, I think about things like public golf, and I wonder why it doesn't come with strings, for want of a better term. Some of those issues could easily be curtailed, could they not, if those facilities that were on public land had a requirement to fulfil some of the things, services that you're offering and be forced diversity and inclusion where it was part of their mission, where you couldn't be like a private club and only accept those who you wanted there. That, have you ever thought about that and, and how that interaction might work? Because, of course, what we know is... If public golf disappears, and it has in some places, it never comes back. So any asset that's lost is lost forever. And if any of the assets that, and we'll come to the numbers that you're doing at the moment, if any of those facilities 
are to disappear. They will not be replaced by something else. They will be gone. Yeah, absolutely. And the, and the minute the biggest challenge we've got in this uh, in this world is inactivity, and it's you know the reason for many excess deaths later on. I think one in six excess deaths can be attributed to inactivity, and it starts at early life. And if you're taking green space that has been around for thousands of years and you're basically saying it's now not available to communities, to young families, to young people, to have that outdoor experience, to start on that journey of just kicking a football around and then potentially hitting a ball or whatever, you take those opportunities away and they're lost forever. And I think that our public servants, our stakeholders in this sphere need to think carefully about ring fencing the crown jewels of society, and that is green space. Mm. And rather than thinking of green spaces like municipal golf courses as a cost, mm. you need to think about it as an investment in the health of your society. Because I go to Glasgow quite a lot, and I'm taken by Glasgow so much because when you look at where the golf courses are, they're within urban environments because that's how they were built. And they, if you like, the, the city is has, has grown around them around the great golf courses so even if you you know only have access to public services or you know you've you've got golf courses on your doorstep mm. so if we could make them more accessible and more community focused which is what we're trying to do then right on people's doorsteps they've got this beautiful green space that can inspire them to have a happy healthier life but if we lose them they're lost forever yeah, yeah absolutely and that People who don't play golf don't think of that as a tragedy, but it really is a tragedy. It takes away the opportunity for future generations, and it's something that they should be entitled to. Like all other sports, they should have access to golf as a life choice. And it's and governments invest all sorts of money in sport. There's no reason why they shouldn't be investing some in golf. Not elite golf, this grassroots golf sort of idea. Speaking of numbers, Tony, you've got – well, you obviously would have started small at one facility. Where are you now? We started with one. We set up the first ever dementia-friendly golf club in the world uh, in Lincoln back in 2016. We then quickly moved to Rudding Park in Harrogate, North Yorkshire. And we opened the first ever Parkinson's-friendly golf club in the world. And then we did uh, Scotland. We did the first dementia-friendly golf club in Scotland on the outskirts of Glasgow, that means Castle. And that's where it started, and we sort of stabilised around those three and sort of tried to establish the model and, and just uh, make sure we were doing things correctly and, and learning from our experiences around those three venues. But luckily, recently, we've had a little bit more traction. We've had more clubs wanting to talk to us about our programming, and we've got 35 at the minute expressions wow. of interest from venues just in the UK wow. that uh, basically would like to think about working with us. But the good news, as we sit here today, and as a result of some government funding, which is a big game changer for us, and it shows that the government here are taking the ageing population agenda really seriously, we got some funding to open 10 more venues wow. uh, over two years, and we've started that process. And now, as we sit here today, Rod, we're working with 16 partner venues in the UK, and we've gone into four new regions of the UK, and our aim here in in the UK is to have a age-friendly golf venue in every single county of the United Kingdom. 
How do you achieve that, Tony? How do you get that message out? How are people hearing about you? Clearly, in six years, that would suggest that's been enormously successful. If you had a business that was growing that fast, if your retail business had grown that fast geographically, it would have been difficult to keep up with. How do people hear about it? And how do you go about maintaining standards, obviously, with a program that's growing that rapidly? I think if I take the standards first, I only work with proper people. So I basically, I mean, I know it sounds a bit glib, but it's a really important thing to me. People are at the heart of everything we do. So the people that I employ to run my golf sessions for me go through an extremely uh, detailed golf program that I've developed. It's called uh, Community Golf Activator Program. So they basically do that online learning and then they come to one of our venues and I sort of, or one of my team, their experienced team, see them in action. And are they golfers, Tony, or are they predominantly carers? I would say it's a mixture, really. I've got uh, ex-police officers. I've got ex-occupational therapists. I've got uh, yeah, decent footballers. And they basically stepped up to actually get involved in this project because it's something that fits their lifestyle. They're part-time opportunities, but they want to give something back through something they love, which generally is sport. Mm -hmm. So basically they step up, put them through the training program, sign them off, and then they are, they are the people that run the sessions at the club. But we rely a lot for the quality of the service, Rod, on volunteers. And again, these are people who potentially have enjoyed a life in sport or maybe have been touched by one of these challenges that we were talking about today, and they want to give a bit back. And they come along, love it, and to them, it's the most inspiring thing they've ever done in, in their world of ever volunteering. So that's in terms of the quality of the service that we sort of uh, uh, deliver. In terms of the sustainability of the business and getting people to be referred into our program, I sit here today, six years on, Rod, and it's still a challenge because that thing about, oh, I can't play golf, I've never played golf, it's 18 holes, it's too difficult, you won't be able to play it with dementia – that message is still a real challenging one to get through to the health and social care stakeholders in all the areas. You would imagine it, when you look at the physical, mental, social benefits for carers packaged up at that price that I mentioned earlier, it's an absolute no-brainer and it's a shoo-in. But that is still our biggest hurdle to overcome. So the more traction we can gain in that sphere of getting people to understand golf in a different way Think of it differently because we do all the hard work. We recruit mm. the clubs. We yeah. get them on board. We set them up. All you've got to do is basically get the customers to come to us, and then everyone benefits from that. Yeah. And eventually it will end up saving our health and social care stakeholders uh, a lot of money because they, unfortunately, because of workforce issues and budget restraints, they don't have the budgets to go out there and make this happen on a daily basis with all these different families. We can and fellow social entrepreneurs like me doing great stuff in the activity space, we can do it. We're proving we can do it. Just embrace us and think differently about golf. How do you go about, and this is the broader challenge for golf, what you've got happening there is a microcosm. You're dealing specifically with the health professional services who are delivering care to the people who, it'd be too strong to say they need what you've got to offer, but who are obviously could benefit many of them from what you have to offer. How do you go about having those conversations? And have you found anything that that sort of works? It, it, it's, it's as if you're reading my mind. Here, <laughs> because 
as a, as, a, as a social entrepreneur, what I love is a challenge. This might sound strange, but I love a hurdle. Well, you've I love one. a challenge. <laughs> I love a barrier. You've picked one and for this sure. Is big, this, is, this, is, this is the big one. So I've been thinking long and hard with my team and we're saying, well, how do we overcome this? So recently with this government funding and this new wave of clubs that we're opening, we've tried what we call a partner's launch event. So basically what we do is we get a list of all of the people involved in health, community, uh, social care within that sort of, uh, if you like, patch of where we're about to launch. Geographically, you're talking. Well, yeah, from the I am, area. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So let's say we've got a new venue in a new county, which I suppose will be a district or, you mm-hmm. know, wherever in the, in, in the, if you were going, let's say, to Melbourne for the first time, what we'd do is we'd look through and see who's involved in dementia care, Parkinson's care, who's involved in sporting care and all that. And we'd invite them to the venue. And basically, what, the clever thing about what we've done is we actually get the first customers recruited before we do their partner's launch event. Right. So, so basically, when they come, they actually see something a to session show. in mm-hmm. action. And we didn't do that when we first started. But the recent ones we've just done have been fantastic. And the actual engagement rate from those local organizations who should be referring has, has gone through the roof. Mm-hmm. And it's just a game changer because – the one thing they said to me is that we thought we understood what it was about, but there's been no substitute for seeing it in action. Yeah. And I always say that golf and society live is how you win hearts and minds. Have you managed to switch any anti-golfers to being advocates for the program? If they themselves are still not interested in golf and still think poorly of it, have you managed to switch any of those health people to becoming advocates for what you're doing, having seen the results? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I've got a health professional who's recently been to the Charnwood uh, Partners launch event. She has never played sport in her life, let alone golf, and had some really, really poor perceptions about the type of audience that plays golf. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because at the end of the day, she works with some of the most socially deprived people in society. And golf is perceived to be completely at the opposite end of society. She thinks differently now about it because she actually heard from the people who had a disability, living with a dementia, a carer on the knees, needing support. She heard all of those great stories firsthand and she's completely changed her view now. Have you had amongst all of that carers who've previously had nothing to do with golf, haven't played or been exposed to the game, who've taken up the game themselves? by having been involved and seeing uh, the people they care for involved in it? Absolutely. I've got a great story to share with you. Uh, Roger and Terry, uh, wonderful. Roger joined us, and he's absolutely thrilled to be golfing. He was a squash player by trade, but discovered golf, and he loves it. Um, His wife and carer was quite fascinated by how he was enjoying it so much. So she spoke to one of my team and said, is there any chance I can have a go at this? So basically, she has now discovered golf. He is playing golf. She is playing with two other carers. And Roger is playing with two other gentlemen. So on one day, I've got three carers going round. 
a short uh, course, and I've got three people with a diagnosis going around. You're juggling ten times to make sure everybody is. finishes at the right times. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and the good thing is that they're at the venue together, but yeah. they're separate. If you see yes, what I mean, absolutely. and they're enjoying their own space and their conversations. Crucial, and it gives them that. It gives them that freedom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Indeed, I want to come back to the thing about golf. As we're talking here, Tony, it just keeps on striking me. And there's probably not an answer to this, but I'll ask you the question unfairly regardless. What is the primal thing about hitting a ball with a stick that seems to fire something in people, do you think? It's not universal. I've met and played with lots of people who've tried the game and just didn't like it. I've met and played with far more who've tried the game and immediately become obsessed and addicted. It's not like other sports, I don't think, in the way people respond to it. If you're a golfer, you are a golfer. There's not many indifferent golfers who play occasionally, can take it or leave it. There's not a lot of those. You're either really into it or you're not interested in it. Or what do you think that might be? Because it feels to me like, particularly, again, with the dementia patients, it's touching something primal, perhaps, that you might not be able to articulate, but that is there in, in all of us, it seems. The... The answer for me, and I always start whenever I get a new golfer, the answer for me is that sense of achievement. It's being able to do something. And even if it is, and this is how it sometimes starts, Rod, a three-inch putt into the hole, seeing that ball with that club going to that little hole and achieving. Now, I always say that that kaplunk is the best sound in golf. Mm-hmm. So if I start that golfing journey three inches from a hole, somebody has achieved, and then I take it back and back and back. So their journey can go from a three-inch putt to 18 holes of golf. But I start at that basic level of enjoyment. And then they think, I can do this, and they actually enjoy it. And then that chemical reaction in the brain about, oh, quite like that, which we all do when when something positive happens in our lives, I think. It's called endorphins and serotonin. I think the medical professionals would call it. But anyway, that's what goes through our brain. It's quite like this. And I think it is that. It's that spark it gives within the brain, within the the, the chemical reaction within the brain that thinks, oh, quite like this. And then it wants us to do more. And interesting enough, and I've never thought about this before, what I do is almost health by stealth. Because what we do is we ne- people don't realize when they've left the golf course, they've done so many steps. Then they probably realize why they're so tired. They don't realize that every time they hit a golf ball, they make 27 major decisions. Mm. Now, that is a lot of cognitive behavioral mm. therapy and motor function going on. They don't realize all that because they're out there having fun and enjoying themselves, competing, possibly winning a trophy and going home with something to show the family. But that's health by stealth for me. And I think that that primeval, as you said, thing about just that little sense of achievement to start with. And then having more achievement and wanting to come back and do more of it, I think that's where it all starts. And that, to me, is the thing about golf that no other sport, even my football and my cricket, didn't give me. Whilst you were talking then, Tony, I was wondering, you mentioned the study that the um, Sheffield Hallam University had done. Are there, is there, are there ways for you to agitate, perhaps, for medical professionals to look into some of the things you've just talked about? We can maybe try to find out what the thing about golf actually is. What are the receptors that are being fed by the act of playing golf it, it 
it it can't just be, we know it's not just a couple of us there are millions of us around the world who are literally addicted to this activity i've never heard anybody really talk about researching the reason for it with what you're doing that kind of becomes important doesn't it, it goes from a pastime of recreation for many of us to something quite important if, if we can learn what it is about golf that helps to fire these things that's the sort of thing that can be used in other areas you would think yeah, I'm a, I'm a bit of a sponge when it comes to research and data and information. I wish I could show you my stat pack. Uh, I've got any, any data you want in terms of health, social, golf, sport, whatever. I can, I've got it, and I love learning more about what it is that sparks people to enjoy sport, to enjoy life, and, and the, the, if you like, the health and well-being impact of playing a game like this. But the one thing that recently sort of resonated with me was, again, the International Golf and Health Conference up in Edinburgh. That presentation by Professor Charlie Foster, where he featured our research, mm-hmm. and, it, and there was other research about coming back to golf after a hip replacement, uh, the musculoskeletal benefits, bone density, uh, around muscle strength, around balance, and all those types of things. There's so much great research gone into why golf is a great game to play. But what I loved about what Charlie said was that he said, golf in society has taken everything we've just talked about in terms of this research and is already putting it into action. And now I think about golf differently. So the thing about golf for me is that that little putt that wins the competition, that gets that individual going home with the trophy, I now think about the health and well-being yeah. track of that two-hour session where I never even thought about that before. Yeah. So I think the evidence is out there. The health professionals are now starting to get on board. I've got some fantastic ambassadors in the world of health, sport, golf, and social care who are now in my corner. And I think that, that getting that message across to people who possibly haven't understood the power of golf previously, I think we're a bit closer than we were a year ago. And it makes it, the future extremely exciting for me because eventually, it hopefully it will cascade from the highest levels of health and social care through society. Golf's one of those facilitators uh, within communities that keeps that happy, healthy, healthy life going for longer. And I think that's why it's such an exciting future. But it's taken a while, but those people... Mm are now on board and are now pushing that message as to why golf is a great game to get, get great game to play more so than ever before. You've got to prove yourself too, don't you, Tony? To be legitimate, you do have to prove yourself. I mean, lots of people come along with all sorts of schemes that are going to change the world and fix everything. You've got to prove that you're actually doing it. You've done that clearly yeah. to this point. What's next, Tony? I mean, I can't help but sit here in Australia and think, oh, Shouldn't there be a golf in society program in Australia? And I imagine you have been thinking the same thing. This golf is a global game. Uh, you would think that this lends itself to some sort of global uh, sort of notion. The concept, no reason the concept can't work in other parts of the world. Have you given that much thought? And how does that perhaps happen? Or have you got enough on your plate just in your own small patch of the world at the moment to be not thinking about that yet? Well, my business advisors are great with me. They have to keep me in my box because. Um, <laughs> Being a, a social entrepreneur, you can imagine my brain sort of um, runs away with new ideas, new opportunities and everything else. But I think we need to do everything in a credible way. I think we've got a little bit more evidence to do. I think we've got a little bit more work to do around the blueprint. I'm going to take take uh, the next year or so to really get that model across our 16 venues. And the other five are going to do next year. So 21 venues, I'm going to get that really, really polished 
And once that model is polished and we've got that stakeholder engagement, those referrals coming into the program, we can show that sustainability. Then I think we're in a really strong place to put it in, in front of investors in each of those countries like Australia, who basically can see there's an opportunity here to do something similar. Because we, we can help. We've developed a special recipe here, a special source that is transferable to other countries where the healthy aging of a population is an issue, where these chronic illnesses are an issue, and where golf is played. So, But I think we're going to do UK first. Mm-hmm. And then once we've done that, then I think we'll be in a really strong position to uh, to come to great countries like yours and uh, sprinkle our, our magic dust in Australia. Indeed. I can't help but ask, Anies, it's a bit of a fascination of mine. What a world we live in. The internet changes all of this too, doesn't it? It puts you in touch with people and makes your content available to people well beyond the scope of what would have been possible even 15 or 20 years ago, doesn't it? Through things like social media. I found you through Twitter. I've been following you for ages and I keep thinking to myself, I must do an interview with the people from Golfing Society and finally we're here. But what's been the impact of that? And I imagine you must get contacted by lots and lots of people uh, through some of those activities from all parts of the world, including your own. I think the interesting thing for me is just when I look at the traffic to the website, if I look at the graph of that and the the number of people that were actually even searching for us back in the day, 2016, it's very limited. And I look at the way that the amount of interest in our project has grown through the website, through social media and everything else, that has given us so much awareness, so much awareness. Mm-hmm. As you say, I never would have been having these conversations with you, God, if it wasn't for that. So it's been huge for us. And the good thing for a startup business, a relatively small social enterprise, it's a very cost-effective way of getting your message out. And, you know, you've seen our videos. Yeah. You've seen our case studies. You've seen our photographs. We've got so much rich, mm. authentic. That's the authentic is the key, trustworthy, isn't it? Yeah. Authentic content that is actually given unconditionally by our service users to you as a, a worldwide audience through social media and all of these channels. And I'm very privileged to have that rich content that I can just keep sharing with the world. And it will we'll keep gaining the traction because that rich media is very compelling. Absolutely. The whole point of it is you can't fake it, isn't it? It's not a marketing exercise. <laughs> the thing markets itself. To finish up, Tony, I imagine you're open to both donations and volunteering. I imagine volunteering is probably almost more important in some ways to your operation there. How do people get involved? We've got a not insignificant audience in the UK. If someone wanted to get involved for whatever reason, how do they go about that? And indeed, should somebody in Australia decide they want to start golf in society here in Australia? How do they get in touch with you and how do they go about doing some of those things? Rod, it, it sounds um, like everybody else would say to you, but the website is the great starting point. All I would say is have a look at the website. On the, on the homepage, there's a chance to book a conversation with me um, to get in touch, whether you want to volunteer, whether and there's a donate button there if people want to make a donation directly into Golf and Society. But the most important thing about the website is it gives you our social mission. Mm-hmm. It gives you our track record. It gives you what we're all about. And it's a great place to start in terms of enriching your knowledge about the transformational impact we're having on people's lives. So I would urge your listeners to start there, www golfingsociety.com and then after that it's really simple we're there to talk to people who want to get engaged with the program because the more people we get engaged the better the outcomes are going to be for 
people less fortunate than ourselves in communities, Rob. We focus so much in this game, Tony, on you know the professional players and what happens at the top of the game, and it's understandable. It's a it's a week to week travelling circus, and it's something to be interested in and whatnot. But golf is potentially so much more powerful for so many people, isn't it? And and it makes you sound evangelical when you say it. You've got to be careful about being too evangelical about it. But there really is something unique about this sport, pastime, recreation, whatever you want to call it. There's something truly unique about it, isn't there, that touches people. The thing about this game is that everyone can have a go at it. Mm-hmm. Everybody can have a go at it, and we're creating the opportunities, whether you're at that highest level, the world number one, or whether you're just starting out in your golfing career at the tender age of 96. Yeah. You can start and enjoy this game. And the one thing about challenges that we uh, deal with, they don't discriminate. So you could be the world's best golfer, or you could be that 96-year-old, and your family may have been touched by one of these challenges. So I just think it's the right thing to do for everybody to get engaged with the programs, because at some stage, all of our families will need support like this. Indeed. And of course, the unique thing about golf, if you're the 96-year-old beginner, you can, in fact, unlikely though it is, go and play with the world number one. You cannot do that in any other sport that I can think of. And and that and that's and that's the one thing I want to just end with is that I love seeing on the first tee at our golf venues a gentleman who's got nothing in his back pocket and a gentleman who's arrived in a quite a high end car who's obviously quite wealthy. They stand there as equal on that first tee. The challenge of that chronic illness has brought them together but they're experiencing each other's company and enjoying it. And I think that's the beautiful thing about golf that is often misunderstood. Tony, it's been fabulous to chat to you. I've really enjoyed it. I'm really keen on sort of exposing these sorts of stories about, we talk to a lot of high profile players on the show and that sort of thing. And those, they're always fascinating those, those interviews, but this is something a bit deeper. And I, I like to try and, Give some science, shine some light on these sorts of golf stories, and what you're doing there with the Golf and Society is just fabulous and amazing. And we thank you for taking some time to chat to us today. It's been an absolute pleasure, and thank you for the opportunity. Some pretty powerful stuff in there, I think you'll agree. And if you haven't already, make the effort to visit the Golf and Society webpage and social media channels to see some of the fabulous work they do. We'll put some links to all of those in the show notes. Well, that's it for episode 79, but I hope you've got our feed saved because on our next is a special look back at one of the most controversial Australian Opens in recent memory. I actually went and had a game with Jeff Ogilvy and Andrew Getson on the Friday before the Open, and we played a couple of holes, and as soon as you drove in, the greens were brown. It was like, oh, I've never seen them like this. I've never seen any of Melbourne courses like this. And I remember the greenkeeper driving up to Jeff and asking what he thought. And Jeff was like, I think, geez, they're on the edge. He he was like, oh, you know, we haven't even started rolling them yet. It was sort of like, this is going to be tough. That's 2002 Australian Open champion Steve Allen. Next time on The Thing About Golf. (laughs) 